people ask, they say, I want to live for God. I know that I don't want to spend my life in eternity. I don't want to spend eternity away from God. But in my efforts to live for God, I just keep going around and around the same mountain. That's a cliche. But what they really mean is, I make up my mind that I'm not going to rise up in anger and pride against my father or my boss or this person in my life who God is using to help me. But then, when the circumstance presents itself again, I can't help it. It just comes alive and there it is and I blow it all over the place and then I feel bad and I still want to live for God, but I just I can't get out of this undertow of a failure. Or it might go something like this. Brother so-and-so, I want to live for God, and I'm trying to live for God, but there are these little things that don't seem important, and I just kind of give them space, give them room, and indulge them a little bit. And before I know it, somebody's coming to me and saying, you're off track. You've blown it. You've, you've really fallen. And I, I don't want to fall, but I can't stop myself. How does this happen? How do I stop this? How do I break this cycle? And somebody might say to you, well, do you think you're ever going to be without mistake? Do you think you're ever going to be without failure? Do you think you're ever going to walk without stumbling? Do you, ever, do you think you're ever going to reach without falling short or falling? The answer is, of course, no, right? But in answering that way, what we're really saying is that you don't need to seek God more because you're always going to be failing. Is that right? We are going to be failing, aren't we? James says we all stumble in many ways. So does that mean we stop trying? It's like saying I, uh, I'm going to have to take a bath again, so why take one tonight? Or you might say I'm going to have to eat again, so I'm just going to give up on eating. It's something I have to do constantly. I've tried eating and I get hungry again. I'm just going to stop. Is that the answer? No. The answer is to bring more of the Word of God into your life so that you have more opportunity to change, more opportunity to be transformed. Now, what somebody might say to you is they say, well, brother, what's really lacking is repentance. You say, well, I don't think so. I'm sad and I'm sorry and I'm remorseful about what I did and that's why I'm coming to you in the first place. And they say, oh, no, no, I'm not talking about that kind of repentance. I'm talking about repentance. And you say, well, what is repentance? Most basic meaning is to turn, right? And I, I turn from it, but then I turn back to it. And they say, well, the Bible talks about a repentance not to be repented of, a turning not to turn back from. And you say, well, what does that mean? And that's what I want to talk to you about tonight. Nobody is ever going to be perfect, and nobody's going to make it to heaven because of the things they did or the things they didn't do. They're going to make it to heaven because they're justified by faith in Jesus Christ who paid the only sinless sacrifice. Amen? Yet, repentance is our expression of faith to God. It says repentance and faith toward God. The writer of Hebrews put them, in one, they put them together. When we turn from sin, we only do so in turning toward God. We cannot repent from what we shouldn't be doing unless we're going to be obeying what we should be doing. 
You're not just going to pull the sins out of the person's hand and leave them kind of reaching toward the sin. Oh, well, I give it up. That's what a child is like. It's their desire to do bad things. It's their desire to have as much candy as they can fit in their face, right? And the parents keep it out of reach. The parent does not expect the child to no longer want the candy. The child doesn't have enough intelligence, doesn't have enough experience, wherewithal, to trump one desire with a greater desire and make that kind of change of mindset. And so there's a season in our life where our walk with God is the same way. He keeps things out of reach. And so long as sin is just out of reach, we're not innocent. We're just, we're just kept in the law. We're kept in the paedagogos, the schoolmaster. In the Greek, it's paedagogos. Paul called the law the schoolmaster that brings us to Christ. We're pinned up. That word can mean like a pin, like a corral for sheep. And the sinner is reaching through the fence, reaching after sin. I want my sin. But the barbed wire keeps him from getting it. That's nothing he can take pride in. Yes, we're grateful he doesn't climb over the fence. We're grateful he doesn't break down the fence. I suppose both of those things are possible. But that is not repentance. That is not repentance. Putting things out of reach is not repentance. Getting someone to help pull it out of your hands while you're still reaching after it. That's not repentance. Repentance is when you encounter the presence of a living God that is more powerful than the pull of sin in your life. So powerful that it makes you turn your back on sin and start reaching after God. Trying to learn what pleases the Lord, Paul said. That's repentance. And you say, well, how do I know when that's happened? You know when that has happened. When you have come to a place of categorical surrender. Not discrete surrender. Isolated surrender. Specific surrender. Categorical surrender. Are you listening to me? There is a point in your relationship with God where you see yourself not as the good person who makes mistakes, but you, with Paul, look into that black pit of selfishness that has become the human heart. And you say, In my flesh, nothing good dwells. You say with Job, I abhor myself in dust and ashes and I repent. You see that you are fundamentally flawed at the core. And as such, you are the most untrustworthy person in your life. You recognize the dynamic of self-assertion, individualism, autonomy. And you recognize that as the source of evil in your life. You say, I was born in sin and shaped in iniquity. 
You say the heart is desperately wicked, deceitful above all else. And I'm not even capable of knowing my own heart, as Jeremiah said. And you make a decision of categorical surrender. Not specific surrender. Not discreet surrender. But categorical surrender. You are not agreeing to God's specific demands day by day. You are agreeing that you're always wrong and he's always right. And you're agreeing to follow his voice to the best of your ability. You are agreeing that for all of the future things that you may encounter, you've already settled those matters in this categorical surrender. When we come to repentance, we have already counted the cost and reckoned with and dealt with the things I'm going to encounter specifically in the future. So I'm going to come into that conflict of specifics with the categorical understanding that I am wrong and he is right. And this is another challenge for me to die and for him to become Lord of my life. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For me to live is not me rehabilitated. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. We cannot live with Christ as Lord without dying daily and that becoming gain. Categorical surrender. Not discreet, not specific, but categorical. In Psalms 51 verse 4, David writes, Against you and you only, Lord, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David acknowledges the sinfulness of his nature, of himself. So that seeing his total, the total depravity of his sin nature is so that, what? God is right all the time. That matter is already settled when I see the sinfulness of me. And Paul quotes this exact passage in Romans chapter 3 when he says, Let God be true, though every man is a liar, so that he is proven right when he speaks and justified when he judges every time. That's repentance. And when you've come to that place, though you fail... It is not a failure of challenging his authority or his lordship over your life. It's just a failure of your adherence to what you already have settled should be the case. Do you understand? So it's a failure of obedience, yes. It's a failure of conformity, yes. But it's not a failure that causes you to call back into question that fundamental death to self and surrender to Christ. That is forever settled. David says in Psalms 119, verse 89, Your word, O Yahweh, is forever settled in heaven. So when God spoke it, you heard it, 
You received it. You confessed it with your mouth. You believed it with your heart. It was settled. And so you face all of the eventualities and all of the unknowns on that rock. God, I've already settled this. It's already settled. No contest, Lord. Before that point, everything is a challenge. Everybody has to prove everything to you and and you're still in the place of Godhood and you've got to make sure all the dots line up and everything is just according to how it should be in your own mind. But once you come to repentance, it's already settled. You know who your enemy is. The same enemy that wanted Adam and Eve to be like God. The same enemy that rose up inside of the most beautiful angel in heaven, Lucifer, said, you shall be like the Most High. That pride, that threat against the reign of Christ, you've already died to that once and for all. And the failures are just, oh God, I didn't see that I was taking the power back into my own hands. Please forgive me. But it's not, God, should I have the power or should I not have the power? That's already settled. Is it settled in your life? Is it settled in your life? Categorically settled? So that whenever anybody begins to speak, whether it be Moses from Mount Sinai, Paul from the Areopagus, or the donkey on the path, whenever anybody opens their mouth, you are prepared to receive the sword that would put this flesh further to death? Or are you prepared in a different way? If you're prepared to say, I have died and my life is hidden with God in Christ. I'm not my own. I've been bought with a price. I'm just wanting to glorify God in this body. If that's your preparation then whatever comes only takes you further toward God. God can speak through bad people and bad circumstances, through suffering and affliction, through blessing, through prosperity. It's all God. And it's all funneling you toward this ultimate day when you're going to consummate your pledge when you cross over into heaven. Amen. And you're with the Lord and He's reigning forever and ever. And that reign has no challenge. The spirit of Lucifer is forever dead in you. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. You see, that's why we have to go through this on earth so that God doesn't let another Lucifer into heaven. Amen. Every single one of us has the potential to be a Lucifer. It's a satanic leap. Thank you, Jesus. Do you understand what repentance is? So when that's settled, then the failures are not failures of of going back to your old authority and your own autonomy. It's just failures of not seeing, failures of blindness, failures of weakness. And you go back and you say, Jesus, you're still Lord. Cleanse me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to know gladness that the bones which you have broken may rejoice again. Hallelujah. But God, you're still on the throne. I've failed you. I've fallen short. But you're still God, even of my failure. You're still God, even in my brokenness. I'm not taking it back. It's already surrendered. All of this, it was in the terms that we signed our names to. And when we gave our life to Christ. Brother Abraham 
told us, he reminded us last night of a time when he was staying home from a service by himself because he was in uh, such a terrible exacerbation. He has multiple sclerosis and he was in such a terrible exacerbation he couldn't, he, was, he had blindfolds on and he was laying very still on the couch. And he was hearing the story of great Christian martyrs, people who have suffered for Christ's name. And he was suffering, but he said to himself, God, I don't know if I could do that. And the Lord said, well, I'm not asking you to do that. And he told us afterwards, he said, God showed me that he only gives us the grace for today. There's no such thing as hypothetical grace. I'm saying that you have to surrender categorically, right? But in fact, you're not going to yet have the grace for all of those events that are going to come. But you know God will give you the grace when those events come. So you don't say I'm not ready because I don't have a, a sufficient warehouse of grace for all the days and trials and pains that I'm going to face. No, you're never going to have a big enough warehouse for that. So what you have to say is, Lord, I know whom I have believed and I'm persuaded. I know whom, not what. I don't know all the details. But I know you, God. And I know you promised in your word that you would never leave me or forsake me. That you are with me always, even to the end of the age. I know you promised in your word that you would not heap on me more than I could bear. But for every temptation, you would give me the way of escape. Now that way doesn't open up until I'm in the crisis. But I know God, and I know He's going to open that way up for me when the crisis overtakes me. I know Him, and I know he, how, that He is able to rescue the godly from every trial. He redeems my life from the pit and heals all my diseases. Amen? So I don't yet have what I need for tomorrow, but I have God. And I have enough to trust Him as the Lord of today, tomorrow, and the next day. I trust His character. I trust His love for me. I trust His faithfulness sufficient to commit myself for all those tomorrows, though I don't yet have the grace for them. And I've heard some people sing, Oh, 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 He's never failed me yet. And I believe it. I see the witness of people who have lived for God faithfully. And I've seen terrible times come on them. And I've seen grace much more abound. So I believe. Therefore I speak. And I say, God, I believe. Help my unbelief. Help the fears that crouch in the shadows of the unknowns of tomorrow. Because I believe. I see your light. I see your face. And I believe that you love me and you're going to help me in all of that. Don't say, I don't feel the grace yet. I still have fears about tomorrow, so I'm not ready to commit. No. You say, God, I have encountered the presence of God. I have encountered the love of God. And I know that He is able to help me. So I'm going to commit. Because He's the only thing that's going to have the sufficient grace when those encounters come. Grace has a prerequisite. What is that prerequisite to grace? Humility. We all face terrible times and we fail. And then we look back and we say, I didn't have to fail. I didn't have to blow it. God's grace was right there. It was within reach. But 
that gives grace to the humble. And I just didn't have enough humility to get down on the ground as low as I could be and say, God, please, would you help me in my weakness? Would you let your strength be made perfect? We all have thorns, don't we? We all have things that make us hurt, make us scared, make us weak. But grace is down very low. He gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourself. The humble isn't a a class. It's not a category of special kind of personalities. He says you can be part of that people if you'll humble yourself. Demote yourself. Lower yourself. That's what it means. Become someone who's not embarrassed of needing God. Crying out to God. You see, I feel the conviction of the Spirit right now. I feel, I feel God speaking to someone right now. I felt it this whole meeting, but I feel it pointed right now. Can you humble yourself? That is the only thing that stands between you and your miracle. You and the uplifting grace of God that will carry you through these dark times, through these dark waters. Whether those be afflictions or persecutions or mistreatment of other people, or those be spiritual battles, wage in your mind, those be temptations, whatever those may be, the only thing between you and the grace is your pride. That pathetically artificial image that we walk behind, walk around behind. That porcelain thin little cast of something that we're not, that somebody poured and made real shiny. We walk behind it. Yes, everything's going great. So-and-so taps us. Hi, how are you? We hold up the mask. We hold up the appearance. And God just wants you to take it. Crash that idol. Shatter that idol into a billion bits. Beat your breast. Say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Visit me. See, we don't need a message in tongues right now. We don't need anything because God just spoke to us. What are we going to do about it? Be paralyzed in fear. Well, fear has to do with pride, doesn't it? If you have nothing to lose, there's no fear. Fear is the dread of losing something valuable. And if you've already lost it all into Christ, you have nothing to lose. And there's no fear. Freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. A woman with the alabaster jar says she was a prostitute. She made her way into the house of Simon the Pharisee. There was one, more than one person with an alabaster jar that day in Luke 7. Simon the Pharisee had an alabaster jar too. It was just a whole lot bigger. It was an alabaster punch bowl. And that woman came in there. This is her life savings. This is her attraction. This is everything. And she shattered it at the feet of Jesus. Now that may not be the kind of things you do in church, but that was Jesus' church. She shattered it at his feet. And she started weeping. Somebody hadn't taught her proper etiquette, how to control her emotions. Weeping and sobbing and wiping his feet. It was an awfully uncomfortable situation. But that porcelain mask, that idol of have-it-togetherness was broken. 
Hallelujah. Jesus' name. Oh, God. Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Jesus' name. Let the grace of God pour without hindrance into the need. Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Amen. See, this is uncomfortable, but God is doing something for somebody tonight. Is He going to do it for you? Hallelujah. Amen. You see, this lady was at the feet of Jesus, and there's alabaster shards everywhere, and there's tears everywhere, and she's wiping it and crying, and she hasn't said a word, but she's broken. And Simon the Pharisee, he's sitting inside his shell still. He's holding up the mask. And he says to himself, if he was a prophet, he would know what sort of person this was, and he would have nothing to do with her. And Jesus begins to challenge him. He tells the woman she's forgiven. That's where he says, he who's forgiven much loves much. But what Simon the Pharisee didn't understand is that Jesus did know what sort of person she was, and he also knew what sort of person he was. But Simon didn't know what sort of person he was. He hadn't come to that place of seeing the exceedingly sinfulness of sin, like Paul said, where he could come to that place of total surrender and brokenness. That cancer stayed intact behind the mask. And that's all God's wanting to do is heal us, love us. Amen. He doesn't want us to break so that we'll be ruined. He wants us to break so that he can take out the cancer and heal us. He can take the heart of stone Give us a heart of flesh. He can take the ashes and give us beauty. Take the chaos and give us meaning. Take the lies and give us truth. Take the selfishness and give us love. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Count the cost. Count the world in. What about this, God? And What about that? What about this? And What about that? And you just keep bringing it back to the cross. I count the cost and I bring it to the cross. Amen. And I say, yes, Lord, your blood covers this also. Amen. Yes, Lord, you reign here also. Amen.